Galatians chapter 3. thought it would be appropriate to pause for some extra time this morning to think about Christ's work on the cross as we uh, look forward to gathering together tonight around the table of the Lord. With that in mind, also we'll consider the truths we find in Lord's Day 15 of the Catechism. So if you'd like to turn there, page 22 of the Blue Hymnal as well, and uh, we'll read through that after we read the passage um, here in Galatians chapter 3. This is God's word, Galatians 3 verse 10. It's given to us for our good. Inerrant and infallible, God's holy word. Let us attend to its reading. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Then if you would go to page 22 in our blue hymnal. Let us read these answers together from our catechism thinking on these truths, using this passage in Galatians 3 to bring some of these out for us. Church, what do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by a civil judge, and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, this death convinces me that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. Most people, when they hear of many of the things in our world which are are difficult to to hear about, difficult to, to bear, 
it breaks our hearts. Uh, two, two of those things, which probably at the forefront of, of most people's minds or what comes to mind when they think about what really breaks their hearts in terms of the things of this world, two examples would be domestic violence and child abuse. There are a few things uh, that go to our hearts and pierce our hearts in the way that, that these do. One of the reasons it's so excruciating and uh, so sickening is that it uses the, the blessing that God has given to the human race, the home, uh, to be that primary source of protection and provision, flips it on its head. It, it becomes a place of exploitation and pain, suffering and abuse. Oftentimes it is men or those called to use their strength to protect the vulnerable, who rather than protectors can become those who exploit. The household of God obviously needs to be aware of all these things for for many reasons. Uh, Perhaps because the household of God needs to be a refuge for those who fall under this kind of treatment, needs to be the place where they receive the care that uh, they may not receive at home. Sadly, though, in the last couple of years, we've seen the household of God that needs to be aware of these things because these sins are closer to home than we would like to admit. We've seen both in the Roman Catholic and the Protestant tradition, various situations like this that would break our hearts. The church needs to stand against these things, preach against these things, show where the word of God shows us that these things are wrong, that they are sinful, that they need to be dealt with in biblical ways. And we need to stand uh, for those who are mistreated and become a refuge for those, just as, just as our God is a refuge for the oppressed and the mistreated. There's another thing we need to be aware of, though, and it touches theologically on uh, what we are considering today, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. I'll explain what I mean. Because of the last 100 years or so, from about the beginning of World War I to now, we have seen the large-scale violence, the things that have happened on a large scale publicly, things that uh, would shock all of us that have happened in the course of our, of our lives and beyond that, the World War I and World War II, various uh, dictatorships and, and uprisings, revolutions that we have seen where people have been killed in the millions. Also, uh, becoming more sensitive to more of these private uh, instances of violence as well. That has caused people to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and uh, become uncomfortable with a couple of things that we find there, and particularly because of understand, misunderstandings about what is happening at the cross. This is a dangerous thing that we need to be careful uh, to know and to know that it can happen. Or the world in which we live, which is oftentimes therapeutic before it is moral, the world in which we live that has become uh, one that views religion as a way to improve our, our sense of well-being or in order to be empowered. It has caused us uh, to perhaps begin to view the cross in different ways. For instance, there have been theologians that have said the cross, if it is what the church has historically said it is, which is that Christ, the Son of God, bears the wrath of God on the cross as a substitute for sin. If that is true, then they say that that is divine child abuse, or they say that that is God-sanctioned violence, or they say, how could a loving father send his son to undergo 
such reprehensible and unthinkable violence. For this reason, it's become an emerging viewpoint and perhaps even the prevailing viewpoint in the Christian church that an American evangelical Christianity that perhaps we have gotten the story wrong from the start. This is gaining significant momentum in the churches. The thought that Christ as our substitute for sin needs to be banished from pulpits and from pens. How could this be the eternal plan of God, they say? How could this be something that God thought was good? But if we lose that truth, we lose the very heart of the gospel. It has been said that Christ as the substitute for sin may not be the totality of what he does, but without that, nothing else matters. Without what he does as a substitute for sin, nothing else matters. What we see in the cross is that the justice, love, mercy, and grace of the triune God are put on display as the eternal plan of God and also by the the, the freely covenanted act of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit manifested to the world in the birth, in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. As the people of God, we must honor the teaching of Scripture on this subject. We must stand by it. We must honor the giving of Jesus Christ as he freely lays down his life in order to atone for our Sins. So first, consider today with me as we go to Galatians to consider this passage perhaps a bit more from a theological point of view to, to bring out some of the teachings on the cross to remind us of that this morning. First, consider this. Only humans sin, but only God saves. Only humans sin, and only God saves. This passage is extremely important for understanding the work of Christ on the cross. It's, it's born out of a theological controversy, a gospel controversy, where the, 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 the good news of Jesus Christ was at stake. Though it speaks to their situation, it speaks to controversies in our day just as powerfully. The situation in Galatia was well known by many. Paul writes in order to confront these false teachers who have come into the churches They have begun to say that that Gentiles need to bring themselves into conformity with various aspects of the Old Testament ceremonial law, that which had been fulfilled in Christ. And so things like circumcision, these teachers are coming in and saying, you need to submit to these various aspects of the ceremonial law. The problem with this, what Paul was confronting, is that Jesus begins to operate as half of a savior, to borrow a phrase from our Belgic confession. They would say faith in Jesus is fine, but there are other things that are needed, other things that are needed in order for you to be reconciled to God, in order for you to uh, obtain eternal life. Even as we hear of it, we think of various phrases that would come to us from our, our catechism, talking about the work of Christ, where the catechism will pause and say, what more do we need? If Jesus is a perfect Savior, what more do we need? Or elsewhere it says, no salvation is to be sought or found in any other. Even what we said today, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Therefore, he is my only comfort in life and in death. This situation, of course, was no small problem for Paul. This is why he writes with such passion and zeal. He says at the beginning of the book of Galatians, if I or if an an angel from heaven were to preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have already heard. Let that person be accursed who would preach another gospel. He brings all of these things to us in short form. 
the passage in front of us. He says, For all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Notice that Paul speaks in absolute terms. He does what we might say, he, he draws a clear line in the sand. He makes... Uh, He leaves them with no doubt about what he's talking about. If salvation is blessing, then its opposite is curse. Paul says the ones who are accursed are those who both teach and believe this message that has begun to gain traction in the churches. This message that brings back that which Christ had fulfilled. He had fulfilled temple observance and temple sacrifice, the ceremonial laws which, the king, which in the kingdom existed until Christ came, until the Savior came. They were meant to point us forward to the sufficient uh, work of the Savior. Through the life of Paul and through the writings of Paul, we see that the church is now to go forward into all the world, answering the call of Jesus Christ, and to proclaim, to declare that salvation is accomplished in Jesus Christ. It is finished. And as that message is declared, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, grants faith in the hearers of that message. And then God, by his Holy Spirit, applies the benefits of what Christ has accomplished to those who have faith. So, Those who are in the church are to be baptized. The word of God is to be given its clear and full explanation. The family of God is to gather around the table for nourishment and for sustenance. This is the call upon the people of God. This is what they are to be doing. Not going backwards in redemptive history, back to the things that Christ has already fulfilled. Paul says that law observance does not save, that it condemns. And it does so because the law was given to highlight human sinfulness, just as we do in our worship services often, like we did today. We read the law as a mirror in order to to show to us our need for a Savior. And Paul says that this is what has been going on since Abraham, and even before that, since the Garden of Eden, when God gave to Adam a promise that those who are saved, that those who are reconciled to God, are so by their faith in God's promises. Abraham was the fount for the nation of Israel. And the Apostle Paul says that Abraham was saved as he believed. And it was reckoned to God as righteousness. So it is not only the specific message of the Judaizers in Galatia that Paul condemns, but he also condemns all messages, all interpretations of the cross that introduce human activity and human work into the picture of our reconciliation. Anything that were to bring human activity, human work, into how we are reconciled to God, Paul condemns all of those messages. And quite frankly, most of the errors that threaten the gospel today fall into this error exactly. Becomes about, not about what Jesus achieved objectively on the cross, but the way that the cross moves people to individual action. A couple of examples. In American Christianity, particularly going back a century plus, and perhaps even more than that, that uh, it was thought, preachers began to think that the cross is such an amazing example of Christ, the Son of God. It's such an amazing spectacle 
that it will be something that moves people to repentance, and it is their repentance that creates forgiveness, right? It's not, it's not that Christ has achieved it, and then in the course of time, God applies those benefits to people, but rather that it is such an amazing spectacle that it moves people to repentance, and their repentance creates forgiveness. One example. Another example, and this is more the one that is closer to what's going on in today's world and the challenges to the cross is that Christ's display of self-sacrifice is one way in which he overcomes violence and oppression, those who murder him unjustly. And thus we, through that example, must be moved to do what Jesus has just begun to do, overcoming violence and oppression in the world. We take up that work now ourselves. But any sense of doing Any introduction of human activity into reconciliation is exactly what Paul condemns here as a false gospel. It is for that reason that faith and obedience are set at odds with one another. They're antithetical in verses 11 and 12. The law is not of faith. And then he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, which says, the righteous shall live by faith. And then quotes Leviticus, uh, the, the, the book of Leviticus to say, the one who does them shall live by them. To show that it is... It's a perpetual kind of obedience that God demands through his law. The ones who continue in everything that the law says. It's for this reason that faith, as Paul teaches, is a a blessed assurance. It's the only human grace that looks outside of ourselves. He says the law is not of faith. Why? Because faith is this human grace that, that would look inwardly to yourself, find nothing of value, and then look outside. Go to something else in order to be reconciled to God. Faith abandons that inside of you, and it looks to something outside of you. But when we consider these things, this take on the cross, that Jesus, it's this spectacle wherein he overcomes violence and oppression, we begin to see modern takes on the work of Christ and that which threatens the gospel now. We begin to see why the notion of God the Father having an eternal plan to send the Son to die a gruesome death at the hands of others. Why that becomes so unpalatable, so unacceptable to so many people. They, in their misunderstanding, they begin to take God the Father as bloodthirsty, as abusive, demanding payment for his creatures who have shirked his majesty and his holiness. In the church, we sing about the blood of Jesus. But do we ever consider the the kind of imagery that it evokes? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And as sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. In a world that has forgotten the moral for the therapeutic for the self-fulfilling, the self-actualizing, this kind of talk is not accepted and it's not acceptable. Forgiveness and grace may be fine. Forgiveness and grace are, are, are things that may be okay, but the means of that forgiveness, the means of that grace, Christ on the cross, all of a sudden becomes untenable to modern minds. The accusation, of course, is that God is is insatiably angry. He's jealous to be honored 
Sin sends him into a fury of rage that ends at the cross. He must have blood. Only violence can appease him. In this way, they construct a picture of God that is a lot like human beings. It's like when you're mistreated or somebody talks badly about you and your reaction, your fleshly reaction is, I'm not going to let them treat me that way. I'm not going to let them talk about me that way. That's the, in this misunderstanding how they're thinking about God the Father, that, that his creatures rebel against him. He says, I'm not going to let them treat me that way. I'm going to show them how far I'll go to have my name honored. But here's the problem. In Scripture, it's not God's dignity that he's standing up for in sending Christ as our sin substitute. It is justice. It is his justice outside of which he cannot act. God is just, he is perfectly just, and he must be who he is at all times. You, you and I, on certain days we may be happy or sad or mad or frustrated. We can look back on a day and say, wow, I was really, I was really more angry today than I normally am. Wow, I, I, was, I, I seem to be more comforted by the grace of God today than I normally am, which is a, which is a great thing. But God is exactly who he is at all times. He never shows forth his love over against his his justice. He never shows forth one over the other. And because he is just in depths which we cannot even fathom, sin demands an infinite payment. The scriptures remind us again and again and again that Those who are sinful are storing up wrath for themselves on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, verse 5. Ezekiel chapter 18. The Lord says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul who sins shall die. A key verse for understanding this, for showing how God is a a simple being who does not change who he is at various times. Exodus chapter 34. We have this magnificent comfort and also this, this scary, frightful truth right next to each other. Exodus 34. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Whatever... And however God chooses to forgive sin and transgression and iniquity, it will not be at the cost of his justice. He will not forego his justice in order to forgive, in order to wipe away transgression and sin. So all of these modern takes on the cross, on the work of Jesus Christ, those which elevate human works have to do so by disregarding justice and by minimizing sin. Disregarding justice and by minimizing sin. Sin isn't really as bad as it seems. God God is not really as just as he sometimes appears to be in scripture. And so what we need to do and to understand is that the Bible uh, does not understate the depth of the problem. And it tells it to us in absolute and clear terms. The Bible does not understate, understate the depth of the problem in order that we might understand the depth of the solution. That's where we need to land, to see the glory of God's grace and what he does through sending his son, Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the solution goes as deep as our problem. That is the glory of the gospel of grace. We see this in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 verses 25 and 26 is a, is a perfect parallel to what we just read in Exodus 34. It says that God put forward his son as a propitiation, 
That's a, a big word, but that word is an object which turns away wrath. So we're dealing with wrath, propitiation. Christ is a propitiation, that object that turns away the wrath of God. He is a propitiation by his blood. You see Paul bring in the message of the cross to be received by faith. And then he says this, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God makes you just by faith in Christ. He justifies you. He does not forego his own justice. And he does that through Christ, who is the propitiation and our sin, and our sin substitute. Only we sinned. Only God saves. And God saves without sacrificing his character. Secondly, only human beings owe it. And only God can pay it. Only human beings owe it. Only God can pay it. Verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The language here is universal. Paul is not talking just to the Israelites, just to the Jews. He's speaking to the Galatian Christians who never knew the Mosaic law before they heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it serves to highlight a universal truth that all of those who seek salvation through human activity, through human works, they lie under a curse. This verse actually alludes to two different covenants. There's the the covenant of creation with Adam, whereby all of us in Adam sinned and are under a curse, not righteous, not holy before God. But where we read that Christ became a curse for us, it speaks of another covenant, an eternal covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, an eternal plan of God to redeem and to save. And it it is this teaching to which verse 13 alludes, that shows us exactly how we can land in speaking about the cross the way the word of God does. And God does not end up being some kind of bloodthirsty or immature deity. Rather, it glorifies and it magnifies the grace of God. Christ became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse. This is the great exchange. Christ's righteousness for the sinner's unrighteousness, his obedience for our disobedience, his vindication for our condemnation, his life for our death. It was not the capricious, violent reaction of an abusive father, but the freely formed eternal plan before all of the ages. It is not as if Christ is a passive an innocent son who is coerced into going to the cross. Nothing could be further from the truth. See, God, this is the key, God cannot be coerced to do anything. And Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, in this eternal covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there is no coercion. There is willing submission, but there is no coercion. A key verse to understanding this is found in John chapter 10. Where our Lord says this, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There we see the the free and willing laying down of the life. Of Jesus 
And we also see the, the willing submission to his Father, the eternal plan of God. We read elsewhere that for the joy set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross. He knew the joy that was set before him, and he endured the cross. Even in his grief, he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? One of the, one of the most tragic things about these modern recastings, these reimaginings of the cross, that, um, one of the things that it does that's so tragic is that it, it forgets the determination with which our Lord came to earth to redeem those who would be his own. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. He came down from heaven as a young man would cross an ocean to find the one he loves, that he might claim to himself his bride. His love for his bride, fueled by love and joy, he endured what we never could, for we needed that mediator who was perfectly righteous, who had the strength to to bear the wrath of God. He needed to be true God and true man. So we need to land where scripture lands. We need to proclaim without apology that what Jesus does on the cross, he does for sin, bearing the wrath of God so that the wrath of God might be satisfied, not as a not as a capricious God in a pantheon of others who needs to be appeased, but as the only righteous God who does what his character says. Romans chapter 5, as we read this morning, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He is the one to whom all of the temple, all the sacrifices of the temple pointed. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles are accused of preaching a message against the temple. And that's because the, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem knew that what they were proclaiming, what the apostles were proclaiming, rendered the temple obsolete. And everyone knew that the temple was that place where blood was spilled in order to atone for sin. Jesus says, The final temple is the temple of my body, for I will be the sin sacrifice. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Passover Lamb by whose blood death speaks no lasting word. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We also need to be careful to note that even though the scriptures clearly speak of the justice of God and that his wrath that must be satisfied, we also need to recognize the depth of the Father's love, both for his Son and for his children that are found in the Son. Consider, as we draw to a close this morning, one of the most agonizing places in scripture, Genesis 22. Agonizing because we cannot imagine the heartache of Abraham as he climbs the mountain uh, to sacrifice his son. Three things, though, that we, keep, we must keep in mind. This has been a, another passage that has come under large scrutiny uh, in, in recent decades. Uh, how, how is this uh, something that a loving and just God could do? Three things to keep in mind. Number one, God knows the end from the beginning. He always knows how a story is going to unfold. Secondly, 
this is the child of promise. God has already promised that through Isaac, Abraham's descendants will be named. So the book of Hebrews says that Abraham understood, even though he was about to undergo something that was going to be extremely painful, he knew that one way or another, he was coming down that mountain with Isaac next to him. The book of Hebrews says, even if the Lord had to raise him from the dead, Abraham knew that Isaac was the child of promise and that he would come down the mountain with him. And third, is that God uh, does not have Abraham follow through with it. He tells him to stop, and he provides the sacrifice. That's why Abraham names that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. The reason that story means so much is that the agony that Abraham experiences for the love of his son is only a fraction of the love that God the Father has for God the Son. That's why in the book of Romans chapter 8, they're picking up on those threads from Genesis 22, and the Apostle Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him then graciously and freely give us all things? If we talk about the cross like we know more about love than the God who is love, We make a mockery out of God and of the cross. If we refuse to stand up for the truth of what the cross means, we make a mockery out of our Lord who gave himself as our sin substitute that we might be forgiven. Ravi Zacharias tells a story about visiting with a a Muslim leader who helped found uh, Hamas, violent terrorist organization. He had the chance to talk about Genesis 22 with this man. Muslims believe the story of Genesis 22. They actually believe it has to do with Ishmael, not Isaac. Uh, But Ravi's point was this. He looked at the man and said, Abraham went up on a mountain. God stopped the arm, promised to provide a a substitutionary sacrifice. Then he says this, on a hill not far from that very same mountain, God kept his promise And took his own son down there. And until we receive the son whom the father has given. We will continue to give our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world. For position, land, prestige and power. His point was this. In Christ. All sinful and selfish violence. Both the the large scale public violence that we have seen over the past century. The small scale, the private, behind closed doors violence that has been coming out more and more in recent years. All lust for earthly power, the mistreatment of image bearers, all of that fades away as we see in Christ that which God the Father gives to us by his love through this eternal plan, this eternal life that he gives to us that goes beyond the grave, that makes this world and this life pale in comparison. That's where the Apostle Paul brings us in this passage to the centrality of the glory of God in all things, not just in saving, but in bringing his people to the finality of redemption as sanctified people who live for the glory of God and who live to serve him. People say, if you proclaim the cross as this final and accomplished message of salvation, That people are totally redeemed and totally set free at the cross. It's morally debilitating because they're never going to want to live for God after that. 
They're going to go live licentious lives, live however they want, think that they can take advantage of God, and that disregards this principle of the centrality of the glory of God. That just as those who realize they need a Savior hunger and thirst after righteousness to be saved and to be reconciled, so those who are given the Spirit, made partakers of the promises given to Abraham and given the Spirit of God, so they hunger and thirst for righteousness in their lives, in their ongoing lives. For God himself is righteous. He calls his people to live in a way that glorifies him. The glory of God in all things. And through Christ, given the Spirit, we willingly and freely and joyfully submit to the glory of God in all things. And by reading a couple paragraphs from uh, Pastor of the early 20th century, said that Christ submitted to the cross and endured the shame, not merely on our behalf, but first of all in order that that not one jot or one tittle of the divine justice should fall to the ground. He not only hungered and thirsted, but was satisfied with the travail of his soul. And now you and I can come and take of the bread and water of life freely. Through justification, we are even in this life filled with the fullness of his merit. And appear to God as spotless and blameless as though sin had never touched us. Through sanctification, his holy character is impressed upon our souls. So that, even with our imperfections, God takes a true delight in us. Seeing that the inner man is changed from day to day after the likeness of Christ. All of this only happens as he bears the curse of sin. As the culmination of God's eternal plan. To show both the love and justice of God, that he might be glorified in us and in all creation, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to live and remain where Scripture compels us to. We admit that our understanding at times is veiled. Father, we know that in the midst of a changing world uh, that we need to remain rooted in your word. We thank you for the work that was finished for us on the cross. Jesus Christ, our sin substitute, who freely gave himself as our perfect sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of your being a just God, And your justice cannot be thwarted that you made a way for our forgiveness through the blood of Christ because you loved us enough to make us your children. May we always be found in Christ, trusting, believing in him. May you glorify us through the spirit that you give to us, through the gospel, through your promises. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.